So welcome to this term strategy lecture. This is a distinguished lecture that we have once a term, named after Professor Christopher Strachey, who formed the programming research group here. Um, I'm going to introduce our speaker, but uh, before I do that, I would uh, like to thank Oxford Asset Management, who have been generously funding this uh, series of talks since 2015. And without their funding, we wouldn't be able to have uh, excellent speakers as we do. So we're really grateful for that. And um, also, they've brought coffee and donuts, so any students and researchers who might wonder about employment might want to go chat to them afterwards. And they, they, they're sitting, they'll be up at reception, uh, so you might like to do that. Uh, the way we're going to do this is, as usual, um, Martin will give his talk. And then we'll have some microphones afterwards that you can um, wander around and ask questions. Uh, so that brings me to introducing uh, Martin Groha, which is actually a brilliant um, pleasure. So Martin is the chair for logic and the theory of discrete systems at the University RWTH Aachen. Probably says that somewhere there, yeah. And uh, he's well known actually for a bunch of different fields that intersect in our department. So um, Martin has written the key textbooks in multiple areas, including parameterized complexity, uh, which pretty much the, the scripture of parameterized complexity is Martin's book, which I think many of us actually own. Uh, he's also got a great book on descriptive, uh, descriptive complexity of graph structures. And actually, Martin, um, some years ago, I was talking to Martin at a workshop, and he told me, I'm going to step back from the things that I'm doing and work exclusively on graph isomorphism. And I remember being immediately jealous and thinking, what a great idea. I wonder why I didn't think of that. And Martin's someone who, who has worked on truly deep things. And so he had a lot of really great results about graph isomorphism. Uh, but I noticed by uh, looking at your DVLP, that he's also done something I didn't predict, which is that after all that, those kind of amazing theoretical results, you have a result in AAAI about graph isomorphism in neural nets, which has about a, a thousand citations. So, um, and uh, I noticed also Martin's got a lot of new stuff about probabilistic databases, so uh, lots to offer. I'm going to shut up, so I'm only going to mention two of Martin's many awards. So uh, Martin is the recipient of the um, Heinz Meyer Leibniz Prize from the German Research um, Foundation for his work in mathematics and also a fellow of the ACM. And we're super lucky to have him here today talking about uh, symmetry and similarity. Thanks, Martin. Oh, good afternoon, everybody. I'm also very happy to be here. Thank you for the introduction, Leslie. Um, I will talk about symmetry and similarity. Just one thing to clarify before. I heard the donuts are only for the students or people who look for employment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was counting on them, so you may have to reconsider that. Okay, so uh, today I'll speak about symmetry and similarity. Part of it is graph isomorphism, and indeed for a while I mainly worked on that. But then, I mean, the nice thing about my job is that you can do different things whenever you feel like uh, doing something else, and nobody tells you what to do. So that's, that's what I do, and yeah, as Leslie said, recently I've done some other stuff, but at the end of my talk I will connect to that as well. So let's talk a little bit about symmetry. So symmetry is somehow something that has been ingrained in human thought for a long time. You see this vase here, which has an obvious symmetry on there. I hope you can, uh, you, you can see it. It's 4,000 years old. Uh, so even at that time, people were very aware of it and uh, somehow found it important enough to put on, on their, their pieces of art. 
Um, and of course, actually, you find symmetry everywhere, not only in human thought, but in nature. That's probably where humans get it from, also there. Um, so it's good that I removed my slide with a butterfly, which in earlier versions of, of, of talks about this uh, was present, but uh, of course, being in a museum of natural history, that fits. Okay, so we have that, and then of course we have symmetry in the arts. We have already seen this on the first slide. Here's a very nice and intricate example as well. And we have symmetry in mathematics, and that brings us closer to what I'll speak about. Um, so what is symmetry in mathematics? It's basically invariance under certain operations. And typically we think of geometric operations like reflections or rotations. So in this octaeda we, have, we, we can basically turn it or we can flip it. And uh, another very typical geometric thing, which at least I don't think about immediately, but it's also... Uh, something very familiar is uh, translation. So if you imagine this banner is infinite and you can shift it, and there would also be some kind of symmetry. Okay, um, and I may, uh, I, I'm listing these different things just to make the point that uh, symmetry has some, some abstract properties and they will be very important for what follows. So let me just fix them. So we have a mathematical object um, and the symmetries of this object, or depending on which area we're in, we may also call them automorphisms of the object, um, are mappings from the object to itself. Um, and they are closed under composition. So if you take one symmetry, uh, apply it, and then you apply another one, you get a symmetry as well. And they are also invertible. You can always go back. I mean, these are the crucial properties they have, and the mathematical structure uh, they form uh, is known as a group, okay? And this will be important because, as a general principle, we'll, we'll think about computation or computing symmetries, okay? And as soon as we have mathematical structure, there's a chance that we can get efficient algorithms. As a general principle, I think that's um, that's fairly reliable, in particular if you're in the range of kind of harder problems, you want to look for mathematical structure and you want to find ways to make it useful. And, uh, and that's the, the guiding principle of much of the research on the stuff I'll be, uh, I'll be talking about today. Okay, and now, okay, we have a group and, and the group of all symmetries of an object X is then known as the symmetry group of the object or the automorphism group. And actually, in, in the area I'll be talking about, we would rather say automorphism group. Okay, and just one last general remark. Automorphisms, that's the, the, the symmetries of the objects are closely related to isomorphisms, which are basically mappings between two objects that preserve old structure. Okay, if you... Uh, uh, if you forget all the geometry and everything, then an automorphism is, an, is a mapping from an object to itself that preserves structure, uh, and isomorphism is between two objects. And the, the two, uh, for the purpose of, of this talk, are more or less equivalent, okay? If we understand the automorphisms, we understand isomorphisms and the other way around. All right, so I want to talk about algorithmic aspects of symmetry. Okay, and they are mostly captured in an old problem in computer science, a well-known problem, that's the graph isomorphism problem. So let me start by telling you what that is, and then tell you a little bit about the history of this problem and what we know. And, well, then we'll arrive at some more recent work. Okay, so a graph, I assume you all know what that is. We have a a bunch of points and they are connected by lines, by, by edges, and then an automorphism or isomorphism is a mapping on the points, on the vertices, that preserves this edge relation, okay? 
And the graph isomorphism problem as an algorithmic problem is the following. We're given two graphs and we want to decide if they are isomorphic, if they are basically capturing the same structure. Okay, but we may be given this, this structure in different representations. That's why it's not trivial. And if you look at these four graphs here, they're fairly small, just eight vertices. Um, well, are they isomorphic or not? It's, it's not obvious. Um, at least if you look at the last one, it's not obvious at all. Um, well, actually they are. All four of them are isomorphic. So in, in some sense, they are all the same graph, just drawn differently. Um, but it's not so easy to see this. Um, but just to check a random one, how could we check this? The, the, the way I would do this just by hand is maybe, maybe uh, number the vertices of the first one. Let's just do this. Uh, okay, so that's the vertices, and now we want to map it to the vertices, say, of the second one, the red one. Can you distinguish the colors? Well, uh, upper right corner. Um, in a way that basically the same numbering then has the same edges. So I would maybe start with a one here, put the two here, three, now this should work, four, five, six, seven, Eight. So that's what we can try. Now what we must check is, for example, here we have an edge between one and two. Okay, and we want to find that edge here as well. Okay, we also have one between one and two. And now let's take a random one. Two and six, there's no edge, so I did something wrong. Okay, yeah, that's the thing with these graphs. <laughs> <laughs> Um, why did I do this wrong? So this year should be six. Did I miss? Well, okay. <laughs> no, I want to figure this out now. <laughs> Sorry for wasting your time. So that was bad. Okay, let's, let's try it this way. We have one. One is adjacent, so this should be maybe eight. Okay, uh, stop me after about half an hour. <laughs> okay, so we have one, maybe let's say this here is five, and this is two. Then uh, the three was wrong anyway. Uh, so five, eight, so the two, we have one, two, uh, three, three should be that, and then Six should be there, that is good, because it also fits to five. Um, and then this probably must be four. Is, is there an edge between three and eight? No. Okay, I'm messing this up. Uh, forget <laughs> it. Uh, I'll leave this as an exercise to you. <laughs> an exercise to you to edit this from the film. <laughs> but anyway. Okay. So you saw my point, it's a hard problem, right? <laughs> and we need a computer to solve it. Good. So that's what we want to do. Um, and we have this other problem I talked about, computing the, the symmetries, the automorphism of one graph. Of course, that's, uh, we can also do. Um, there's only one problem, there can be too many. Okay, a graph with n vertices may have up to n factorial many um, automorphisms, and just, that's just too many to, just, to, to list them all. Um, okay, so what we actually want to do, we want to compute a generating system for them. So a set of automorphisms such that all others can be obtained as compositions of these. Okay, and then it turns out uh, that these two problems are equivalent in the sense that if you can solve one efficiently, you can solve the other. That's not completely trivial to see, but it's, it's something that has been known for a long time. Okay, and we want to exploit this because mostly our approach will be to address the second problem, the automorphism problem, even though in practice we usually want to solve the first one. Okay, so the big open question is, if, is there an efficient algorithm solving this problem and our 
model of efficient algorithm is polynomial time algorithm. Now you can debate if that's a good model. Well, my answer to this is probably not, but it's the best we have. So we want to go for a polynomial time algorithm for this problem or the other, the automorphism problem, as they are equivalent. Okay? Um, let me just remind you of a little bit complexity that you see probably in your first theory course, but that's important here to set the stage for this problem. Um, we have the class of polynomial time solvable problems, the ones that we can solve efficiently. Then we have this class NP, uh, which contains them and many other natural problems. And you can describe this class as the problems, well, where you cannot find the solution efficiently, but at least once somebody suggests a solution, you can check efficiently if it is a solution. Okay? Um, so that's NP. Many natural problems fall in there, but then we have the class of NP complete problems the top here, uh, which are the hardest problems in NP. Um, so if you can solve one of these efficiently, you can solve all the others in NP also efficiently. And what happens is that most natural problems that you see in the applications are either here, they are NP complete, or here. They are never in between. Okay? Now, graph isomorphism is one of the very few problems where we don't know where it belongs. Okay? And we don't know for a long time now. Um, so when I was a student, I was basically learning that probably it's a problem that is in between. Um, now, I don't believe this, and I think these days people don't believe this anymore. I think we, we, we all believe it should actually be in polynomial time. We only can't prove it. Um, but anyway, what we can do, and that has been proved by Babai uh, 2016, um, so, so not so long ago, and that was a big result. We can uh, prove that it comes close. It's solvable in what we call quasi-polynomial time. It's, um, it's still something that has a, a kind of a exponential growth, but um, the, ex the exponent of, of this is just growing logarithmically. So that's kind of close to a constant and then it would be polynomial, okay? Uh, so, so that's pretty good. Uh, it, it's, it's a really nice paper, and um, so there is still progress in this area. But where does the whole thing come from? Actually, the first papers on computing isomorphisms uh, come from chemistry, or chemical information systems, to be precise. So, the chemists have these graph representations of molecules, like the one you see there. And um, so they, they stored them in databases, but then you can draw the same molecule in different ways. So when they find a new one, they want to know, is it already in our database or not? So they have to match it against those in the database. That's the problem they faced. That's the isomorphism problem. Um, so, so, so they came up with some heuristics and then computer scientists, so that's an early reference from the, from the 1950s, right? And then computer scientists, the first two papers from computer science about the problem are from 1964. Um, but at least in, in theoretical computer science, which is my area, uh, the problem gained prominence in the 1970s. Well, in the 1970s, this NP completeness I was talking about came up, and there was an extremely influential paper by Karp, and he showed that many problems that people in combinatorial optimization mostly, that people had been studied for a long time, all turn out to be NP complete, okay? NP completeness had just been introduced, but more as an abstract uh, thing, and then Karp came and said, oh, look, all these uh, natural problems fall in there. Okay, great paper, extremely influential paper, and then he had an open problem, and that was, what's with graph isomorphism? He didn't know. Okay, um, in 1979, Gary and Johnson wrote a book about uh, NP completeness, and they still didn't know. And today, we still don't know. It's one of the very few remaining open problems from that book. And, well, then people got frustrated from this, uh, about this. So here you see a 
title of a paper that was also influential called The Graph Isomorphism Disease, which is kind of funny because, I mean, the problem had been explicitly stated five years earlier, and even then people were tired of it. <laughs> now, I, I told you about Babai's algorithm from 2016, which is more than five years ago, and I'm presenting it as, as pretty much a new result, uh, telling you that there's still a lot going on in the area. So, you know, if you work on a problem for long enough, I guess uh, the time scales shift a little bit. Um, okay. So we have that, and not so much was happening in the 1970s, but then uh, starting in the 1980s, there was big progress, and that's where group theory came in, okay? So people had this idea, okay, we have this group structure, we must use it, and Babai was the first to have the idea. Uh, he suggested the general approach, and then the, the really important paper out of that period was Lux's paper, who showed that if the if the graphs have bounded degree, then you can solve it in polynomial time. Now, this result in its, in its own is probably, it's a nice result, but not so important. But what makes this paper extremely important is that he introduced basically a strategy how to solve it, a method how to, to exploit this group structure. And that, for example, has been used also by Babai for his quasi-polynomial time algorithm and in much research that follows Lux's paper. So that's, that's an extremely important paper. And now we make a big step, not that nothing happens in between, but we come to Babai's results. He showed that it's in quasi-polynomial time. You see that the means of communication have changed over years from typewriter to YouTube. Um, that was a presentation by Babai on this result. He gave a couple of seminars at, at the University of Chicago when he announced this in fall 2015. And actually, we had a Darkstool meeting in December 2015. And he, basically, the afternoons, all, all afternoons, he talked about this. It's an 80-page paper, and he, he tried to explain it. I, I remember that very well. Okay, so there we are. Um, let's a little bit talk about practical stuff. I will move towards more practical stuff towards the end of the talk. Now, my interest in graph isomorphism, I should say, is mainly the theoretical one. It's a problem where we don't know the complexity. We should, okay? Um, and also, it's it, a lot of nice mathematics involved. But, but I'm also coming to the more practical things. Now, one thing to note, around the same time uh, that, that Lux wrote his influential paper, um, Brendan McKay came up with a tool solving graph isomorphism. And that, already in 1981, worked very well. It's called Naughty, and um, it's still one of the best. I mean, he continued developing it. It's still of the, one of the best tools. And, you know, in, in most practical situations, you can just solve isomorphism, which distinguishes it from other uh, NP-hard problems. You can solve them sometimes, but usually it's also easy to come up with hard instances. For this, it's very difficult to find examples where the tools don't work well. Okay, so the state of the art is probably combination of naughty with, a, with another tool by uh, Adolfo Piperno uh, called Traces. Um, okay, so we can solve it well in practice. Now you may ask why on earth would we want to solve it in the first place? So let me, let me tell you a little bit about applications of this. And, and we have two different types of applications, which is interesting because they are really, really very different, um, but both build on the same thing. And the first I call graph matching applications. You have different graphs, you want to match them, you want to know if, are they the same, okay? The chemical information system thing I mentioned is of that type. You have two representations of a molecule, you want to find if it is it the same. The same thing happens in computer vision. There's been a lot of practical work on, on uh, this. They call it graph matching, actually, uh, in computer vision, um, which is 
completely uh, uh, unrelated to the work in theory, by the way. Uh, so, so, anyway, so, so for example, what they do, say, in face recognition, they represent faces uh, as graphs where they, they have a node for the nose and the eyes, or so what do I know? And then they want to match the graphs. Uh, and then there's many applications like that in, uh, in computer vision, so they, they want to do this. Or static program analysis is another example, malware detection. You may have flow graphs of code, and you want to match them. So that's one typical type of application. And the second, as I said, is quite different. There we want to use um, symmetries uh, to, to simplify hard combinatorial problems. So we can try to use the symmetries of an input instance to a hard problem, say, to just simplify the instances, maybe collapsing equivalence classes or vertices, or we can just prune search trees if we have backtracking algorithms. And again, this has many applications, for example, in uh, set solving and integer linear programming and so on. Okay, so these are the, 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 the types of applications. And one thing I noted when I, I looked at this quite a while ago that actually in most of these applications you don't require exact isomorphisms, exact matchings. It's usually good enough in, say, in, in these computer vision things if, if you have an approximate matching, okay? Sometimes you want it to be exact. Probably the chemical information systems require exact matchings. The static program analysis or the computer vision, probably not, okay? And when then you, you start to think, what is it, approximate isomorphism? And that leads to the second part of my talk uh, on graph similarity. And actually, that led me to think about what graph similarity could probably mean and so on. So I'll come to that. But now I want to continue um, with isomorphism and tell you a little bit about some algorithms and some recent work we've been doing there. But let's start with a... A simple old algorithm, also from the 1960s, um, which has somehow become quite important in recent years. Um, that's the Weisfeiler-Liemann algorithm, which is also known as color refinement or naive vertex classification. And what it does, it, it computes the coloring of the vertices of the graph in a very simple way. Um, iteratively, initially all vertices get the same color, and then we repeatedly refine the color, coloring. And the way we do this is we look at two vertices that still have the same color, and we give them different colors if there's some other color such that these two have a different number of neighbors of that color, okay? And we repeat this. So we basically get a partition of the vertices into color classes, and we repeat it as long as the partition gets finer. And at some point that stops and then we return this stable partition. So I can just show you a little demo of that. Holger Dell wrote this. So here we have some graph, random graph with parameters that uh, turn out to be convenient in this context. Well, here it's actually a tree. Uh, let's do a new one. Tree is too boring. Is this a tree again? No, we have a triangle at least. Okay, anyway, let's look at this. Um, initially, all vertices have the same color blue, okay? So then we start the refinement. And what should happen? Now, for example, this one here has two blue neighbors. So it should get a different color than that one, which only has one blue neighbor, or that one that has three blue neighbors. So let's see what happens now. Yeah, so here this one has, is red. This is some, some ugly greenish color, and that's another green. Okay, and now let's see. This one here uh, has a, a purple neighbor and one of these greenish neighbors, whereas this one has one of those as well and uh, a green one. So they should get different colors now. We do another step, and now, yeah, we had these three. They have all different colors. Now, of course, if the, as the number of colors 
grows, they get harder to distinguish. So let me just click through this. We get more and more colors. And at some point, we're done. Nothing new happens. Okay, now we could try the same thing again, but basically, the, the partition of nodes into color classes stays the same. And that's, uh, that's the stable coloring. Okay, that's the algorithm, very simple. Um, before I tell you uh, what we actually do with it, let me just mention that this can be implemented to run very efficiently uh, in almost linear time, also no large constants, so this works really, really well. Um, so we have this, well, almost linear time, we have a log factor there. Um, so a while back we were wondering if we can get rid of the log factor. Um, and we could show that probably we can't, at least if we stick to somewhat reasonable algorithm. Now, if you, if you start to do uh, arithmetic on the bits of some real numbers, I have no guarantees, but uh, the, so the lower bound applies to a fairly wide class of algorithms. Okay, so we have this very efficient thing, but um, what do we want to do with it? How does it relate to what we're interested in? Well, basically, it detects non-symmetry. If two vertices get different colors, then, there's no then they are different, structurally different. So there's no automorphism mapping one to the other. Okay? And our goal would be to, to detect all structural differences between the vertices. Now, unfortunately, uh, this does not always happen. It actually does happen on, on random graphs. Okay, um, so on almost all graphs it happens, but then um, almost all graphs are not particularly interesting, so uh, this tends to not cover uh, the interesting graphs in particular. Well, it depends on what you're doing. Leslie may disagree on that, but <laughs> anyway. Now, it fails on, on simple graphs such as this one, because if you look, uh, color refinement or Weisfeller-Liemann does nothing there. Every, now the vertices are black, every vertex has two black neighbors, so th there's nothing to even start. That's already our stable coloring. But then, of course, the vertices in the triangle are structurally different from those in the, in the four cycles. So uh, there it miserably fails, and that also happens. Now, since it's so efficient, we still want to use it in practice and somehow turn it into a reasonable algorithm. That's what the practical tools do. Um, actually, okay, one more thing I wanted to mention um, is that as an isomorphism test, we would say the algorithm distinguishes two graphs um, if the color histograms are different, okay? If one graph has more red vertices than the other, they cannot be isomorphic. isomorphic. Um, now, if for all colors they have the same number of vertices, we don't know. So this is what we could regard as an incomplete isomorphism test. Okay, now I wanted to go to the practical stuff. Okay, so we have this algorithm, and it's, it's very efficient, but incomplete. So what do we do? We basically in, integrate this in some kind of backtracking algorithms, and that's what all the tools uh, that are successful in practice do. So let's see, just briefly explain how this works. So we have a graph here, we do color refinement on the top one, on this one, okay? We have two color classes, red and blue. Um, now that doesn't help us much. Now, if every vertex had a different color. That would help us because then we could take another graph and if it had a different color pattern, it would be non-isomorphic and if it had the same color pattern and all vertices have different colors, we know exactly what the only possible isomorphism can be and we can just check it. So our goal will be to somehow in a canonical way find a coloring where all vertices have a different color. That's what we're trying to do. Now here we have three red vertices. That's bad. So what we say is, let's take one of the red vertices and individualize it. And that means just give it a random new color, purple here. Okay? So now, of course, 
all three red vertices look the same for us, so we basically have to branch. We build a search tree. In the second branch, that vertex will be the new one, and in the third branch, it will be that one. Okay? So we're here, and we run color refinement again. Now, since this vertex is purple, this one knows it's different than the other two, so it also gets a new color, light blue. Okay, that still doesn't help. We still have two red vertices and two dark blue, and we do the same thing again. We say, this now becomes pink. Then the neighbor also gets a new color, and now suddenly we're in a situation where all vertices have the same color. And we expand the full tree, and then basically with this object we can uh, compare two graphs. Now that alone wouldn't be very efficient, but then what we can do is we can... Um, we can prune this tree in, in, in clever ways I don't want to get into, so that usually the tree is fairly small and then this works quite efficiently. So basically at every node of this tree we run this one WL algorithm, um, but that's okay because it's so efficient. Good. So now let's move into the, uh, into the theory. Uh, very firmly into theory. Uh, first of all, the algorithm has a higher dimensional version, which you could have guessed because I called the previous one one-dimensional. So in the k-dimensional version, instead of vertices, we color k-tuples of vertices. Well, we can also do this, then the running time will be something like n to the k, um, which is still polynomial, okay? Um, now, if you do this for k equals 3, then all algorithms people usually come up with are subsumed by this. This is stronger by every single algorithm that people suggest to me after my talks on graph isomorphism testing and so on. It's, uh, so so we, we always have this. So that's a very powerful algorithm. Actually, a while ago I showed that if you have a glass graph class that excludes some fixed graph as a minor, such as planar graphs or graphs of bounded tree width or classes like this, then actually there is a case such that this is a complete isomorphism test. On the other hand, it was known for a long time uh, that on general graphs it's not. Okay? So that's combinatorial algorithms, and that's basically where we stand with combinatorial algorithms. Quite powerful, but not good enough. Um, so let's finally move to the groups. So we know the solution space to our problem, the automorphism group, has a nice structure. Okay, we want to exploit this. But how do we do this? And that's the challenge, of course. And Lux suggested a divide-and-conquer approach. Okay, for solving this automorphism version, so he wants to compute the automorphism group, but it's equivalent to, to isomorphism. All right, uh, so the goal is to compute the automorphism group. And what we do is we take some, some supergroup that contains all automorphisms. That may be the group of all permutations of the vertex set, or it may be something that we obtain in a different way, somehow easily. Um, and then we, we basically compute a decreasing sequences of groups that get closer and closer to the actual automorphism groups. And what we do is we kind of exploit the structures of the groups we see, and, well, we in, in groups we can split them up along orbits or blocks, if you know what these are. Otherwise, just uh, believe me that we, you, you, there are natural, way, natural ways to split up permutation groups and somehow reduce the problem size, move to smaller groups, but then at some point we get stuck, and that's when we hit primitive permutation groups. They are the bottleneck, and in, in Lux's setting in the old paper, basically at that point he just said, okay, and now if the input graph has this simple structure, bounded degree, um, I don't have to worry about them and I can just use brute force. And then Babai was much more refined in his algorithm and, uh, and used some heavy machinery to deal with the primitive groups. In the end, we know a lot about them. The, the classification of finite simple groups, uh, a monumental piece of work in mathematics, 
tells us a lot about how these groups can look. And basically now we can look at the tables of groups that appear and see what we can do with them. Um, and in a sense, that's what we're doing. All right. Um, so let's look at the main results that, that build on this group theoretic approach. Um, and n is always the number of vertices of the input graph, and d is usually the maximum degree, the maximum number of neighbors uh, vertex may have. Okay, so Lux proved that isomorphism of graphs of maximum degree d can be decided in time roughly n to the d. Okay, uh, a few years later this has been improved, or actually just one year later, to n to the d over log d. Okay, Babai, many years later, proved uh, that you can do quasi-polynomial time. And actually, in like the worst case runtime, there hasn't been much progress between these two papers. There have been many diff interesting papers on graph isomorphism in the time between, but uh, now, in, in some sense, these, these papers really uh, are immediate successors, if you will. Okay, so that's where we stand. Now, if you look at this, uh, let's say the maximum degree is log n, okay? Then what do we have? Lux tells us we need time n to the log n, and Babai doesn't care about this and still tells us n to the poly log n. Um, and that somehow bothered us, so we looked at this and kind of combined the two results and we proved the following. If you have graphs of maximum degree d, you can go to time n to the polylog of d. Okay, so that's kind of uh, the, 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 the minimum of the two. And for example, for graphs of logarithmic degree, that improves both running times uh, quite a bit. Okay? And I think I skipped the proof of this. Oh, let me just tell you a little bit about the strategy. I, I wasn't going to tell you the whole proof anyway. But we, we basically proceed in three steps. The first is we just analyze the groups that appear here. Using the classification of finite simple groups, we understand the structure of these groups that we need for this divide and conquer stuff. Then it turns out we can't just apply the divide and conquer stuff. We need one in intermediate step. And that may be the key in innovation in our work. We somehow encoded parts of these automorphism groups into the graphs. So we augment the graphs by certain tree structures that help us then in the third step to apply basically Babai's techniques Unfortunately, we couldn't just use Babai's result as a black box, but we had to look in, into his stuff and then actually compute the group in the time we want. And now with this, uh, with this machinery, we could do uh, a bit more. For example, if you have graph classes excluding a fixed graph as a minor, and this graph has k vertices, uh, then we also have an algorithm running in time n to the polylog of k. All right, so if I've lost you here, good news, we start a completely new part of, of my talk. And we have a nice picture here again. That one even older, uh, 5,000 years. Uh, it's a very nice relief, and, and you see the symmetries again. Um, okay, so there's basically a symmetry axis in the middle. Okay, now one thing you note, of course, it's it's not an exact symmetry. Okay, so, so if you look here, that's, that's different than what you see here. There's actually something, something very funny about this. So basically, if you, if you disregard these uh, small imprecisions, uh, you have the symmetry along this axis, you would think, if you look at the heads of the deer, but then if you look at their feet, it's the other way around. You would have to flip it over like that to match the feet, but then the heads would be wrong. Uh, that, uh, that's kind of puzzling. I, I wonder why they did it this way. If they hadn't noticed or thought it was funny or didn't care, uh, it's, it's interesting. But anyway, 
my, my point was, um, even though this is not a precise symmetry, it's good enough to convey the main, main point. Uh, the, the picture still looks fairly sym symmetric, okay? So approximate symmetries can also be good enough. And in many, many situations they are. Okay, now let's look to, to modern times and look at these three graphs. Uh, again, showing chemical molecules. Now, which of these are, are more similar? Well, you can think about it. They are all pretty similar in a way. Um, so what shall we say? Um, okay, let me be a bit more precise. Uh, when it comes to designing synthetic fuels, now that's from a collaboration with chemical engineers at my university. Um, so we looked at things like this, and we want to understand which molecules may be good, good fuels in the end. Okay? Um, it turns out that with respect to the properties we care about here, the two blue ones are more sim similar, okay? Now that's something I don't understand why that is. I can't even pronounce the names of these, so how should I? Um, but we worked on this, so, so basically what we did, we built a machine learning model that kind of tries to predict uh, the properties of these, and. The way this goes is we usually map the graphs into some vector space, and there we can then use standard techniques from machine learning uh, to distinguish between them. And the mapping, if this is correct, that the two blue ones are more similar, should maybe be such that the two blue points are closer together. Okay? And that, that also gives us uh, a method for, for quantifying similarity, we can just map two vector spaces in a way uh, that, that closeness in this space somehow corresponds to similarity. Okay. Um, let's leave it there and just think about how else we might approach graph similarity, because I'm sure that's not the first thing you would have thought of. And if you ask theoretical computer scientists, uh, the first answer you get is all, almost always what, or how to quantify similarity or distance between two graphs is you would want to count the number of edge mismatches. So you try to align the two graphs, and then you have to delete a few edges and add edges to the other, and then you should get the same or isomorphic ones. Okay, that's what you might call edit distance, uh, similar to edit distance of words. Okay, now that's something that seems very natural for us, uh, I think in, in, in theoretical computer science and algorithms and so on. On the other hand, if you think about it, let's say they are fairly close, you only have to flip 5% of the edges. Now if you flip 5% of the edges on a graph, it can look very, very different. Um, so it's not clear at all that it, this is in any way a meaningful measure, okay? Um, let's look at, I was hoping to have more, but now I'm apparently stuck, oh, that's annoying. Okay, let me just try to quit the program. Okay. Oh, now we have to run through the whole thing, and I just hope that I wasn't just stuck at that slide. Uh, okay. Okay. That's just for the vote what was the best slide in the end, so take notes now. Uh, okay. Ha! It worked. Okay. Now, something people do in machine learning is what they call graph kernels. Basically, um, for our purpose, they extract features from a graph, maybe even infinitely many, and the features are coded as real numbers. So, for example, number of triangles in the graph, number of edges, whatever uh, people come up with. Um, and then you compare these, these vectors of the numbers. Okay, that gives you some similarity measure. And if the features are meaningful, it sh they sh that should tell you something. Then there's uh, another step now. 
as I described it, people select the features. Now we could let uh, machine learning uh, select the features. Okay, so then we get learned embeddings of the graphs. So the features would associate vectors with the graphs, so we embed them in some vector space, and we can kind of, from examples, we, we can tell them these two are similar, these are not similar, and so on. Uh, we, we can try to come up with a good, uh, a good measure. Okay, so techniques for this are graph neural networks, graph contrastive learning. So that's stuff we are working on uh, these days in practice, and many other people are as well. Um, then, okay, I, I grew up as a logician. Uh, I, I did my PhD in mathematical logic, so for me, uh, in a fairly immediate thing to think about is logical equivalence. Uh, take equivalences in increasingly stronger logics, that should give you a feeling of how close two graphs are, okay? Bisimilarity is equivalent to this, and many people here uh, will know what that is. If you don't, never mind. It won't play a role in this talk, okay? Um, then we have this algorithm, Weiss-Feiler-Lehmann algorithm, which was not a complete isomorphism test, but maybe we could say if, if it does not distinguish two graphs, then at least they are similar. That's a, and then we, we have this hierarchy of algorithm that gives us some kind of distance. That's a, something we could do. Of course, then, if we're most, more mathematically minded, we can say, okay, now we have these adjacency matrices of the graph. We can apply some matrix norms to them. That should give us a distance. That's actually related to this edit distance thing. Or if you're more sophisticated, we can think of optimal transport distances. Okay, so we have all these approaches. Now, what do we do with these? Um, I, I think this similarity problem is really, really important for many practical means, mainly for machine learning, because machine learning is always built on similarity in some way. Um, so we should understand it, but there's almost no theory. So I tried to think about it, and basically I came up with uh, basically two different ways of thinking about similarity, and I just want to share them with you. And the first I call operational similarity. And under this view, two graphs are similar if you can transform one easily into the other, okay? That's a natural way of thinking about it. For example, edit distances of this type. You want to few, delete as few edges as possible and add as few edges to get from one to the other. And if you have few, uh, few operations, then they are close. Um, so the optimal transport distances I mentioned are also of this type. Now, an, an additional thing that you get out of this is usually you, you even get an alignment of the graphs that somehow realizes this, which may be useful sometimes. Then the other side I call declarative similarity. Under this view, two graphs are similar if they have similar properties. Um, so the graph kernels, where you collect certain features that the properties are of this type. Logical equivalence is of this type. The two graphs satisfy the same properties expressible in this logic. Now, the advantage of this way of thinking about it, you can actually adapt it to a specific target. You know which properties are relevant in your practical application, so you choose these and look at these. Okay? Now, what do we do with this? So, we, we can kind of uh, separate the examples I gave you into these two categories. Now, the question is, are these related? Right? I actually think in, in some way they are just two signs of the same coin. They are dual uh, to one another. And uh, I just take this as a hypothesis and try to, uh, uh, to, to turn it into theorems. And the remaining few minutes, I just want to show you uh, a few results pointing in this direction that actually there is a relation. So, again, now the next three slides or something will be a bit more technical, uh, but then, then you're done and hopefully we all get a donut. <laughs> okay, so um, edit distance, I mentioned this. We can write it this way. 
so what do we do here? We have two graphs, adjacency matrices A and B. And now uh, what we can take, the adjacency matrix has a one if there's an edge, zero if there's a no edge, but uh, in the two matrices, the vertices may be ordered in different ways. So we apply a permutation to the first, then compare it to the second. Uh, so take the difference and then take the norm, basically count the number of ones or minus ones that remain. Uh, that's what edit distance is, and we have to minimize over all these alignments. Okay? Um, or we can write this in a pure matrix form. We minimize over permutation matrices and then take this expression. Just trust me that this is, this is right. Okay, now, if you write it this way, one thing you see is you have to minimize over all permutations. This is incredibly hard, in theory and in practice. Uh, the, the, it's a really bad space to minimize over. So, for example, one way... Uh, to, 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 to uh, support this is that even if the two graphs are just trees, I mean, usually everything is easy on trees, but here is even NP hard to compute this, okay? Uh, so that's even if it was a good measure of similarity, it would be kind of useless uh, because you can't compute it. Well, then you could say we can, we can relax it a little bit. Uh, and we can take a convex problem that approximates it, and then we can solve efficiently. And the way we can do this is, instead of minimizing over permutation matrices, we minimize over doubly stochastic matrices. Again, the important thing is here, that's the convex uh, relaxation of this problem, and uh, such problems we can solve. Okay, so that gives us a new distance map. Uh, measure. It's not clear what it actually means and what it tells us about the graphs, but we can try, right? At least we can compute it now. Um, okay, so that's one thing we can do. So that's on this operational side, right? We started from edit distance. Now let's start from the other side. And what could be good features? Um, well, in general, what turns out to be good and also related to many other features that people use is uh, we count homomorphisms. So what's a homomorphism? It's a mapping that preserves adjacency. Okay, so here we have two graphs. That would be a homomorphism. We map the middle vertex here, these two here. So they are both neighbors and here's an edge. And that one here, there's also an edge. So that's a homomorphism. And now we want to count them. Okay, so for example, number of triangles would be the number of homomorphisms uh, from a triangle to our graph divided by six, but who cares about dividing by six? Okay, so we can do that. And now this gives us a vector embedding. Say we have a class of graphs, uh, the class of all cycles, okay? And then we can uh, collect all these homomorphism numbers in one vector. Could be finite dimensional, could be infinite dimensional. Okay, that gives us an embedding. Okay, here's an example for these two graphs. Uh, okay, and once we have the embedding, then the distance in the vector space induces a distance on the graphs. I'm close to the end, okay? Um, so we can do that. That also gives us a distance, which be rooted on the uh, declarative side. And now here's a theorem um, that says these things and many other things are the same in some sense. The precise statement is, so for any two graphs, their distance in the star sense is zero, if and only if all the homomorphism numbers are the same, okay? Now, that happens, interestingly, if and only if the one-dimensional Weisfeiler-Lehmann algorithm does not distinguish the two. So there, we actually have a very efficient algorithm. Um, we can also write this as a logical equivalence in a strange logic that has been studied a lot in uh, descriptive complexity theory. And maybe the most interesting addition here is, uh, also this happens if and only if the two graphs cannot be distinguished by a graph neural network, so by a learned embedding. So that's quite nice how things fall together here. And I want to stop with that and just two one slide on very general research directions. Um, so, graph isomorphism, there's still 
a lot happening. I mean, the problems are really hard, and it's hard to make progress, but I think it's very interesting and worthwhile, so I still work on this, although not exclusively. Um, so, for example, one problem that is interesting and where not much is known is the group isomorphism problem, uh, where you want, instead of graphs, you look at groups. Um, similarity is kind of the opposite. It's practically extremely important. In theory, we know very little, and there's a lot to do and probably a lot of easy progress to be, to be made. Okay? And here are just two references of survey papers I wrote uh, fairly recently. You, you, you can look at, at these if you're interested, and that's pretty much it. <laughs>